Happy Monday, kitty cats. And before we get into today's interview with the former economic hitman himself, John Perkins, I want to remind you about our format here, our amazing variety show format. It's not just me here every single Monday where I bring you interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement. I also host roundtable discussions. Heck, this show itself is in some ways its own variety show. But besides me on Mondays, we've got Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday smacking you upside the head with his unique brand of comedy, culture, and raging about just about everything liberty-related, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up on Fridays with his incredibly important look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday, a must-listen-to show. We're all must-listen-to shows, if you do ask myself. And maybe you didn't even ask, but I'm telling you anyway, because you need to know you get three amazing, unique shows for the price of one just by hitting that subscribe button, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, wherever it is you listen to podcasts, you get three unique shows for the price of one. And that price is free. And if you want to support us more, you can head over to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. My guest today is making his second appearance on this program. He is the author of 10 books and has sold over 2 million copies, including the New York Times bestselling Confessions of an Economic Hitman, as well as his most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, called Touching the Jaguar. I am so pleased to welcome back John Perkins. John, are you ready to roar? Oh, Mark, am I ready? If you can see me, I've got this shirt. I, I'm wearing a shirt that's got a Jaguar on it, and the Jaguar goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> the Jaguar and the lion are, are very similar, at least when it comes to, to their silhouette. So I think it's very appropriate. Yeah, well, they, then they both roar. Yes. Uh, well, John, I, sp- I first spoke to you about two years ago, and uh, I recently caught a presentation that you gave at Offshore Escape 2020, put on by our friend uh, Mikkel Thorup over at Escape Artists. And I was also a presenter at, at that event, so I decided to attend myself and watch a bunch of the uh, presentations. And yours just sucked me in so much that I thought to myself, I, I have to reach back out and uh, get John back on to talk about this book. So uh, for those who might not be familiar with your work or are maybe just tuning in for the first time to the show, might have not caught that last episode. And of course, I want to encourage people to go back and listen to your last appearance on this program. That was episode 329. You can find that conveniently located at lionsofliberty.com slash 329. Uh, but perhaps before then, so no one has to just pause that interview right now, you can give kind of a Cliff Notes version of just what it is you used to do as an economic hitman, what it is you exposed in your book. Uh, so what exactly is an economic hitman? Well, Mark, I, I, so my official title was chief economist at, at a major international consulting firm. Sure, it didn't say economic hitman on on your business card. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't say that. <laughs> but my real job, and I had a staff of anywhere from thirty to fifty people, depending on the time. And my real job was to identify countries with resources that corpor- uh, corporations want, like oil. And then arrange huge loans for, 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 for those countries from the World Bank or some other U.S.-controlled institution. The money didn't go to the countries, though. It, it went to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in those countries, things like power plant systems and, and uh, industrial parks, highways, uh, things that made it look as though the, the, the prosperity of the country was increasing in addition to making large fortunes for our corporations. 
it really served very rich families in those countries that owned the industries, that owned the means of, of commerce. And it, it looked as though the whole economy was growing because when you invest in these infrastructures, you, the GDP does increase. Sure. And for a number of years, I thought I was doing a really good thing because I thought I was increasing GDP, which I was. But I, I came to understand that GDP is a lousy measure. It doesn't measure a country's prosperity overall. It measures the prosperity of the few rich families. And then the majority of the people actually were usually suffering as a result of these projects because money was diverted from health care and education and other social services to pay off the, off the uh, interest on the debt. And in the end, uh, the, the, the principal was never paid off. So we'd restructured the loans under the IMF uh, and, and, uh, and it would require conditionalities whereby the country had to sell its resource, its oil or whatever, real cheap to our corporations without environmental or social regulations and privatize uh, public sector businesses like schools and education and utilities and let us build a military base on the soil, things like that. So over time, I came to realize that what we were really doing was colonizing these countries. We were not helping the majority of the people. Well, a big theme in your new book, Touching the Jaguar, is really perception and how we perceive things and how we can sort of control our, our lives and shape the world through our perceptions. And, and I know, like, I think a big conflict for you that, that you describe in through, throughout your books is is sort of your internal conflicts as you were performing this this sort of job as, a, a, you know, doing economic analysis. Uh, but deep inside, you really started to learn and, and more, know more and more as you went along that you were really doing something wrong. It really took a, a change in your perception to see the sort of the truth of what you were really doing. Can you describe that process a little bit and, you know, sort of how that you went through that internal struggle and how basically you, you ultimately changed your perception to see the truth of what it was you were doing? Yeah. So, so yeah, a major theme in the book is that our perceptions mold our reality. Uh, you know, there's no United States, there's no Canada, there's no religion, there's no culture, there's no corporations except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codified into law, it has a huge impact on reality, it creates reality in essence. And I was using this perception of, of, of investing in all this money in, in, in infrastructure to make it to, to create the perception that we were doing good for the country. But as I came to understand that and my own perception changed, I was really pretty caught in the system. I was making a lot of money. I came from a, a relatively poor family in New Hampshire. We, my, my parents were teachers. They weren't we weren't starving. We, 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 you know, we lived in a good house on a campus of a boys' boarding school, but we didn't make much money. My dad didn't make much money, and we, I was surrounded by very rich students. All my life, I'd wanted to visit the places they came from, like Park Avenue, New York, Buenos Aires, Paris, and now I'm doing that. And so once I began to see the truth behind this system, I really didn't want to admit to it. Uh, I thought I was living the American dream, but uh, you know, I came to realize that that I wasn't ultimately, and I wasn't happy. I was I was miserable. I was I was living off alcohol and, and Valium, really, I was, so I could sleep. And and you know, it, it, and then I had an enlightening experience at one point where I really had to make the decision and and, and face my own jaguar, confront this thing that was holding me back. And that's what touching the jaguar means. It's 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 a it's a it's a term out of the Amazon, where an Amazonian shaman taught me that, you know, if we want to 
change our reality, we change our perception. But in order to do that, change our perception, we have to touch the jaguar that's holding us back, that's keeping us locked in the voices of the old system. Ah, you're living the American dream. How could you possibly leave it? And once we touch that jaguar, it tells us, oh, but you're really not happy. You're not living your dream. This is this is not the way you want to live your life. You really want to be a writer. You don't, and you don't want to keep destroying people. You you want to help people, and so you know it. It, it took a, a long process to for me to actually finally touch that jaguar. But when I did, it was transformative, and it, it changed my life for the rest of my life, much for the better. <laughs> I'm sure you've touched plenty of Jaguars, Mark. I have the program that you have. <laughs> I, I sure have. Maybe both. Well, maybe not literally, but uh, I am here in Mexico, so there are there are Jaguars pretty close by. Uh, actual Jaguars, but uh, I'm sure I've touched plenty of uh, figurative Jaguars along my way here as well. And I think this concept is something that a lot of people can relate to because so many people out there, maybe they're not economic hitmen, are doing something on that sort of a uh, global of a level. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people that are maybe pursuing avenues in life, or perhaps not pursuing certain avenues in life that they deep inside they know they should be pursuing or know that they want to be pursuing, but they become trapped in some sort of system of their own sort of perception. You know, they, they perceive they're supposed to be on a certain path. Maybe they were, were told to go to medical school when they were a kid and they did that and they've just been on that path, but deep inside that wasn't their passion and they know there's something out there. They got to go, go touch that Jaguar, but it's hard to break out of that trap, out of that perception trap as you describe it. I'm wondering if you could give some advice to people and, and we'll dig a little bit in, more into just the meaning behind touching the Jaguar and, and how you first came into that in a minute. But if you just had some advice for people that are listening right now and are just thinking to themselves like, Man, that's that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I'm not not destroying the economy of third world countries, but uh, I don't feel right about what I'm doing. I, I feel something inside me that says, you know, this isn't the path. What's your advice to people to just how they can start to sort of facing that path, how they can first see that jaguar in the first place and recognize it for what it is? Well, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, Mark. And, you know, the book is it's the narrative nonfiction, which is the way I write. So I tell a lot of stories that I think are fun to read, exciting, interesting. But in the end, it, 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 it comes down to helping people realize what it is they most want in life. And I, I, I set up a process that everybody can practice for maybe 10 minutes a day or even less, or they can do it once a week, that, that really addresses this, that each one of us can address. And it's, it's based around uh, five questions. But the, the first question, and perhaps the, the essential question, is what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest sa satisfaction? When I'm, when I'm lying on that proverbial deathbed, what will I look back and be proudest that I've done? Or what will I look back and, and regret that I didn't do? And now's the time to do that, to really look at what it is you most want to do. You know, whether it's be a, a radio host like you or a writer like me or a carpenter or a plumber or a, a teacher, what, whatever it is, what is it you really, really want to do for the rest of your life? And then you follow up with four other questions that lead you through the process of touching the Jaguar. And, 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 and you can come out with this total understanding that will make you, your life better. And, you know, the, the subtitle of touching the Jaguar is transforming fear which is often, almost always, the fear of, of change, transforming fear into action to change your life and the world. I want to talk a little bit more about that Jaguar specifically and um, how you first came into this concept. And uh, you described an ayahuasca session, uh, I guess. Uh, I have discussed ayahuasca on this program before. I've had Mike Brancatelli on who's discussed his experiences. I know you've been on his show before. And uh, our good friend Zach Geist over at Student Loan Tutor. It wasn't ayahuasca, but he had a similar, uh, a very psychedelic experience that led him to sort of perceive reality in a different way and, and send him down that path. So could, could you 
describe exactly what happened when you first took the ayahuasca. It was not it was not by uh, choice necessarily at first. I mean, you, you allowed it to occur, but uh, you didn't go into things thinking, oh, I'm going to go do ayahuasca. It was a uh, much different circumstances that led to it. So if you could just describe that for a bit. Yeah, Mark, sure. That's uh, It was 1969. I was a Peace Corps volunteer deep in the Amazon. This is I just graduated from business school. It was before I became chief economist, economic hitman. Uh, deep in the Amazon, and I was dying. I was I couldn't keep any food down. I was extremely sick. I, I couldn't stand up without help. I was a three-day walk, uh, a, a three-day adventure, really, which involved one day of hiking through very dense jungle, and then two days of, of taking a rickety old bus, if I could find one, up a terribly curvy dirt road up, up about 10,000 feet. My, my stomach uh, was turning just describing uh, the, those bus rides. <laughs> I mean, I, I was getting scared of heights just sitting in my house reading. So, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine what it was like uh, or like for you. Yeah, and, and, and as a, to get to the nearest medical facility, no way I could do it. So a shaman offered to heal me. Well, I had no idea what a shaman was. I graduated from business school. It's 1969, but it was like my only option. And so that night, he he took me on a uh, shamanic journey, a vision quest, if you will. And I'm in an altered state of consciousness, as you said. I'd taken ayahuasca. I had no idea what that was. It was I had no idea at all. He asked me to drink this foul tasting stuff. That and that's got to be something too, because nowadays a lot of people do go to South America. They go on an ayahuasca retreat, and they're going into it knowing full well exactly what they're doing. They've done a lot of research. They've heard people like you talk about it. But in your case, you know, this is the '60s. This is before this stuff even took off in a mainstream way. You had no idea what you were drinking. You just knew you were drinking something, and the shaman said he was going to heal you. And that, that's about all the information you had totally yeah yeah and yeah i'd never heard the word before ayahuasca and and the and the, and the schwa don't use that word they they call it natem so it wasn't even that the word <laughs> right. wasn't even there but um so on this vi vision quest and, and incidentally there's many ways to do this you don't need to take the plant to do this we can talk about that more if you want mm -hmm. but um i i said i I'm got my eyes closed i see this amorphous shape in front of me the shaman kind of yells at me, he says, touch the jaguar. Well, I look all around, I open my eyes, I look all around like I'm in the middle of the jungle. Where's the jaguar? That is scary. <laughs> this is very scary. And he says, no, no, no. Close your eyes and see the jaguar and then touch it. Well, I did. And this amorphous shape shifted into a, a jaguar. And I heard a voice like my mother saying, the food and drink will kill you. And at that moment, I realized, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in after with part of three, 300 years or so of Yankee, New England, Calvinist. We ate very, very uh, bland food. Right. Suddenly, I'm living with people who don't drink water out of the river because they know the rivers are dangerous because they're filled with organic matter, falling trees. They, they, they drink a kind of beer that's called chicha that the women make by chewing and spitting manioc root. It sets up a fermentation process, alcohol, and then you can add water. And you got to drink a lot of this stuff because you got to rehydrate it's the tropics. And eating You're some basically very getting drunk on jungle beer and having to constantly <laughs> drink more so you don't dehydrate too much while continuing to drink the jungle beer. <laughs> yeah. And, and incidentally, the, 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 the schwa never, the people that drink this, they, they never really get drunk because they drink a lot of it over a period of like 24 hours. Indigenous people get up every few hours in the night and, and, and check the fire and check to make sure there's nothing, no dangerous animals around lurking outside. No actual no, no jaguars. jaguars. Right. <laughs> yeah, or, or anacondas or anything else. And, wild boars and 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 then they drink a little chicha and then they go to bed so so they don't really 
you don't drink a lot at once. But um, uh, so on this uh, on this uh, I, on this journey, I I saw that uh, I was hearing this voice saying it would kill me. At the same time, I'm seeing that how incredibly healthy, how vibrant, how how it, it, how strong the Schwa people are, and 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 many of them would look to be very old if they didn't die in a hunting accident or, or something, and so. On that journey, I, I, I saw that it wasn't the food and drink that was killing me. It was my perception. After that, uh, I was healed. I was better. And, and the shaman required that I become his apprentice. I, I had no desire. There was no future in shamanism in those days. But he saved my life. And, and one of the things he taught me was this business of touching the jaguar. And he said, when you know you've got to change something in your life, you want to change something, you try to change it, and some, something tells you to stop. You can't change, like your mom's, like my mom's voice in that particular case. And if you don't, if you don't listen to that, if you run from it or just ignore it, it'll haunt you for a long, forever. But if you reach out and touch that jaguar, that barrier that's standing in your way, it gives you the energy, the wisdom, the power, the courage, whatever it is, the knowledge to change. And and then you can move into a new reality, basically. And, you know, after that, I studied with shamans in many other places, in the Andes and in, in Iran and Indonesia and Egypt and all of through the Americas. And they all taught the same thing. Our, our reality is molded by our perceptions. And when you come right down to it, Mark, that's the basis of modern psychotherapy, of quantum physics. Sure. Of advertising, of marketing, of corporate, of uh, it, it, basically everything we do as humans is controlled, or just about everything, by our perceptions. They mold our institutions. They mold our reality. And that was an amazing teaching. There's so many directions to go from here because there's so many areas I want to dig into you with. But one I want to kind of kind of get into with you is just this concept of the jaguar and. Um, not the metaphorical concept so much as the the literal image that people see uh, that are that are from tribes like this that take ayahuasca. I mean, it's a very very commonly uh, known thing that people do see a, an image of a jaguar. And, and I just want to kind of want to dig into what you think about things like that. I mean, do you think that these plants connect us to sort of another plane of of actual reality or or maybe even more reality than we are now? And that is why people see similar images. Is that sort of what the universe is sending to them, or do you think it's more just a product of their environment? Uh, they they live in the jungle. They know what the jaguar is. They respect the jaguar. So perhaps this thought is already in their mind, and uh, you know perhaps the plant then just takes them where their mind already wants to go. But I'm just curious how how you perceive um, these plants like ayahuasca. How they perceive us connecting? Are they connecting us to ourselves? Or are they connecting us to something else? Or is it is the truth you know somewhere in between maybe? I, I think they're they're opening a portal to to a new self realization. Uh, or giving us the information, uh, as I said, the, the courage, the patience, whatever, to move forward and, and to change. Uh, and um, it's it's just one portal. And let's face it, most shamanic cultures around the world don't use these plants. And, you know, I, I was trained after that as an ayahuasca shaman. That was my training. And, and, and I think the plant's great. But I also know that like the Mayan people who I take people to, and I've got a trip coming up this January. If some of your listeners want to join me, go to johnperkins.org. The Mayan people don't use these plants. They use fire ceremonies and they're just as powerful. This last year, someone was on a trip to the Amazon with me in August, did ayahuasca, had an incredible experience, 
went on the trip this last January to the Mayan people, did the fire ceremonies, and afterwards told the whole group, this was more powerful than the ayahuasca. This opened me. So these things, and, and, and this daily practice that I have in the book that doesn't include taking any substances, um, it, it, they open us to a greater understanding of what we really want in our lives. And, you know, these this is really five questions. What do you most want to do? What will make you the happiest? What will bring you the greatest satisfaction? The second one, how do you tie that in with helping other people? Because that always makes us happier, whether it's one other person or the world. And the third one is, what's holding you back from doing that? What's your Jaguar? And the fourth one is, when you touch that Jaguar, what new perceptions do you get that allow you to move forward? And the fifth one, what actions do you take? To move toward toward that, and and ayahuasca can do that for people, uh, but but so can many other portals, and and we can do it for ourselves every day if we just do, just have a have a daily practice or a weekly practice. Hey there, kitty cats! I need to take a quick time out here to tell you about another awesome libertarian podcast. This is our good friends Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. These son of a guns—they do this thing five days a week, and they absolutely kill it. Uh, these guys are both musicians, and they both actually own a business working in the healthcare IT industry. So they've seen a lot of what goes on in a highly intervened-in market like healthcare. So they have a lot of great insights, and they really do a bang-up job. To talking about current events and really speaking to a lot of the news that's in the headlines and filtering it all through the ideas of liberty and kind of uh, shutting down socialist solutions that come up. So you can find more by subscribing on all your favorite podcasts app. Wherever you listen to this one, you can probably find, not probably, you can definitely find Good Morning Liberty, or you can check out their website, BernieLies.com. What a great name. Head over to BernieLies.com or search for Good Morning Liberty. You are not going to regret subscribing to this awesome show. I want to circle back to this concept of perception because one story that really stood out to me in, in the book is how you were perceived by the tribe in, in Ecuador, uh, especially once you realized how, how you were being perceived, uh, when you realized the children were seeing you as, as some sort of alien, uh, quite literally, really, and how you were you thought you were there to do something really serious, and, and you were uh, in your mind to create sort of a savings and loan co-ops to help, help people there. Uh, but to them, they sort of perceived you as, as more of the entertainment. So you're both in the same place, perceiving each other in in completely different ways. Can you just kind of dig into that a little bit more so and to get, kind of give people an idea of what, what life really is like in some of these places uh, where some of these tribes live? They are really are so di- disconnected from the way that we live, the reality that we live. And part of your mission is sort of, you know, kind of helping to create a bridge between uh, indigenous societies like this and, and our current society, or not current society, but you know, the society many of us are used to living in. But could you just describe that situation a little bit more for, uh, for the listeners? Sure. And, and, and these things are changing very rapidly. Many of these tribes, which are now most of them recognized as nations, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, are changing. Education's coming and religion and it's not necessarily a good thing, frankly. Um, that's another topic. Sure. But, um, you know, they so, yeah, so the, the so really what the, your question is, what kind of an impact did they have on me? What, what, what do you looking for here exactly yeah i mean I, really i was more focusing on on the way they perceived you compared to the way you perceived them when you when you first arrived yeah. there they didn't know how to perceive me i i arrived there and tell them that you know the peace corps sent me to form credit and savings co-ops because i'd been a business major and 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 that these were tra- had trained me for eight weeks in southern california to 
in, in credit savings co-ops. And they look at me like I'm crazy uh, because they don't have any currency. Right. It was all barter for them. You're, you know, your papayas for my bananas sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's no way we could do a credit and savings co-op. So then they wanted, well, what's the real motive here? What do you really want to do? How do you, how do you, how do you plan on exploiting this? Cause that's what they had, you know, like, that's what they expected in sure, a way from course. came in from the outside. And yeah, I, I tell in the book, this story of one, one, one morning when this little girl runs up to me and, and, and touches me and, 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 and then runs away and then comes back and she says, in, 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 this is all, you know, and she speaks very poor Spanish. She speaks mainly schwa, but she's been learning Spanish. So, and I wasn't, my Spanish wasn't very good either. So we had this funny exchange that basically she says, why you not turn to star dirt, <laughs> stardust, you know? And, and, and I said, you know, like, why, why would I, why would you say that? And she, she points out at a brother who's standing off in the shadows of the, next to the forest. And she says, well, my, 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 my brother says you come from there. And she points up, you know, the stars. And if I touch you, you turn to stardust. You didn't turn to star dirt, she called it. You didn't turn to star dirt. So this little girl thinks that I'm an alien from another planet. And, and nobody really knew what to think of me. And then when I got really sick and the shaman healed me and then took me on as his apprentice, the whole attitude of the community changed. And suddenly I was accepting their ways and they were accepting me and the shaman had accepted me and... And so suddenly everything changed and it made a huge, huge difference in the way I looked at them and the way they looked at me. Yeah, it's a, it's a really humorous moment in the book when you sort of have that revelation and you realize like, well, the thing you were sent there to do is so beyond ridiculous <laughs> that, that I mean, it's just, it's just really funny when you have that moment because you just realize like, no, I'm just, I'm just entertainment for these people at this point. Uh, I'm definitely not, yeah. I'm not, they're definitely not, definitely not seeing me as their banker. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I get up every night and in my lousy Spanish give a lecture about credit savings co-ops because that's what I've been taught to do. That was my job. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I, I knew that I couldn't, I didn't think, I, 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 I'd been told that it couldn't possibly happen by the school teacher, that they didn't have any currency. But I couldn't really accept that because if I couldn't do that, what? why was I there? I had to ask myself that question. And the fact of the matter is I joined the Peace Corps to avoid the Vietnam draft. I did not believe in the Vietnam War. I did not want to go and kill people who I had nothing against or be killed by them. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to admit that I, could, that I had nothing to offer these people. And so I, every night I'd get up and give this talk in, in my lousy Spanish about forming credit and savings co-ops. And this funny thing happened, you know, every day more and more people showed up to hear me talk. They came out of the forest. They'd walk for many hours sometimes and have to walk back in the dark and have flashlights. And so I'm thinking, wow, you know, like this is working. And these people, they're going to form a credit and savings co-op. And then one, one day the, the school teacher there, one of the few people I could kind of communicate with in a different way, he comes up to me and he says, hey, you know, uh, this, you, know you may be thinking you're going to form a credit and savings corps, but, but really what you got to do is look around you. And he said, do you see any newspapers or magazines here? No, nobody could read. They were illiterate. Do you see any radios or television? No, there, were no, there was no electricity. There were no radios and television. He said, 
you're it. <laughs> you, you know, I was Saturday Night Live every <laughs> <Right>. night. <you> know? <laughs> the word had gone out. There's this crazy man, and and he's, he's he gets up and gives these talks, and he doesn't know how to shoot a blowgun. He can't track an animal. He he's not he can't. He's not going to survive very long. He's going to be dead soon. You better come and see him while there's still time. He's crazy, and it's it's kind of it's amusing. You know, like yeah, I was the sideshow. I was Saturday Night Live. I was the entertainment. There's one channel and it's John Perkins. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one, one concept I want to get into you with, um, you talked a lot about this uh, at your presentation at Offshore Escape 2020. Uh, you're often critical of, of what you describe as a, a certain kind of capitalism, not necessarily you know the broad scope of capitalism. But uh, I want to dig into exactly what that means a little bit, because I think when you when a lot of people criticize capitalism, especially you know a lot of listeners to this program, they'll get triggered. They'll go, no, capitalism, it's, it's freedom. But I, I don't want to discuss the word so much, because I, I think the words get twisted over time so much. What, what capitalism might have meant 30 years ago might not be what it means now to most people. But what I really want to dig into is what what you would criticize, what what type of capitalism you would criticize uh, as being destructive or, or being part of what you often refer to as the death economy. And, and then we can get into how we might differentiate that from what, what libertarians might view as capitalism. Yeah, it's it's uh, so it's what I call predatory capitalism and other economists are calling it that, too. It preys on people and resources it creates this death economy, which in, in the driving factor there, the perception is that you that businesses have to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And that's an absurd premise. It's it's, it's new in, in the history of human beings, our 250,000-year history. We, we've only looked at this for, for the blink of an eye in history. It seems like a long time to us, but it really hasn't been. It's a crazy concept. And it's, you know, it, it drives corporations to create monopolies, oligarchies. It, 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 it destroys competition in many places, in many ways. You know, you can still have two um, coffee shops in your town uh, uh, competing with each other on a friendly, competitive basis. And then Starbucks comes in and wipes them both out, let's say. Or the same thing you could say about a pharmacy, local pharmacies and the big chains or or the, the Walmarts and so forth. So capitalism, by its strictest definition, is a system whereby the means of production are not owned by the government. They're owned by individuals. And it encourages free competition and, 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 and fair competition. And we don't have that. Well, our businesses aren't owned by the government, but our businesses own the government. Right. Basically, Which might big, be worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The big corporations... Or the shareholders, nobody gets elected without their money. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a terribly brutal system of driving out competition. The idea is to build big, build a monopoly, get rid of your competitors or buy them out and, and merge with them. And so it, it is not in my, in, in, from the strictest definition of capitalism, we don't have it. Right. But what we may call it was predatory capitalism, a mutant form of it, if you will. I think the most important thing you mentioned there when describing capitalism as, as sort of being, um, you know, th their priority is the bottom line and, and short-term profit regardless of social and environmental costs. And I think that is the most important thing we can focus on when having this discussion, because I think that the biggest problem is that when going into countries like this, when company, companies go into countries like this and, and they might work with their governments, um, on the surface, they might just be engaging in, in free trade, engaging in capitalism. If they're going to a certain area, uh, extracting oil, selling it, that's capitalism, right? But, when, but what you realize is they're not 
not bearing those costs. They're not having to bear the costs of the destruction they are causing and the people they are displacing. Because, you know, like I know in Ecuador, um, which you mentioned, a lot of these areas are considered uninhabited lands. But the reality is these are not good farming lands. Uh, the local tribes use all of the land to, to hunt, to gather. So what might seem from an airplane, again, this goes back to perception, what might seem from an airplane as an uninhabited land uh, is really an area that a small tribe might be using extensively and has been using for, for centuries or for who, who knows how long, for millennia perhaps. Uh, so really, I, I would consider that all of their land. So any violation of, of you know, of, of those land rights or those, those land use rights uh, should certainly be borne by the companies. But the problem is now these companies are so embedded with the governments, the government might go in and give them permission to use this land. But the government certainly didn't get that permission from the local tribes or the people that have been using that land, uh, you know, for so long, for, for much longer than any of these companies or any of these governments have been there. We can talk about Ecuador, where, where Texaco uh, promised to uh, develop oil back at the time when I first went there as a Peace Corps volunteer. And, and the, the promise was that they would pull the country out of the dark ages, out of the, you know, there was a, it was a very poor country. And in fact, what they did was pull, pull, the poor, pull the wealthy people out of that, but in the process destroyed huge, vast areas of the Amazon rainforest. And they've killed a lot of people. Uh, they they've recently lost a lawsuit uh, that was headed up by an American lawyer named, named Steve Donzinger, who's going to be on with me, incidentally, tomorrow on a, on a webinar I do that people can sign up for at johnperkins.org if they if they you know go to the the order the book page, um, and it's caused tremendous deaths and so forth. Uh, Texaco Chevron lost the case. Nine and a half billion dollars, but they've refused to pay, and they don't have any assets in Ecuador. And now they've taken all their assets out. That's the problem. I mean, even when they lose a lawsuit or you, you, you know, file legal action and are quote unquote victorious, who's going to enforce this? You know, if they just don't have assets in Ecuador, uh, you know, there's there's not even a government there that can enforce anything against them. No, they they can't. And and uh, um, you know, in Central America, we've seen something very similar where where. Uh, small farmers who, who grew corn or or cotton or other products have been forced out of business because the big agribusinesses from the United States have undercut their prices horribly. And actually, it costs more to produce those products in the United States. Those big corporations, it costs them more to produce it, but they sell for a lot less because they're so heavily subsidized by the U.S. government. And that's really the cause of our immigration problem. People are flooding out of the Central America into the United States because they can no longer survive. They can't make a living doing what they traditionally did, which is, is growing things locally, uh, because they, the, the big, the, these big agribusinesses and other businesses have, have put the, the little guys out of business and put the normal people out of business. That's the kind of capitalism we have that, that I call predatory capitalism. And I was a large part of promoting that. Uh, and I believed in it at the beginning. I didn't realize how insidious and bad it was at the beginning. It took, took time for me to realize this, but it, it is all based on this idea of maximizing short-term profits, regardless of the consequences, and it's created this death economy, an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction by, by focusing on the short-term use of resources and also destroying the environment and destroying so societies and cultures around the planet. Yeah, and again, I think the key there is that these companies don't have to bear the consequences. That, that That's the biggest thing. If they had to bear the consequences, well, they'd have to take the consequences into account. Uh, so I kind of want to delve into a little bit how you foresee 
us, the world perhaps, transitioning from this death economy uh, into more of what you describe as the life economy. Uh, obviously, it would be you know, wonderful, maybe not wonderful, but I don't think anybody should be a dictator of the world. But if John Perkins could be dictator of the world and could just you know snap his fingers and make everything into the life economy, that would be great, but it's probably not going to work that way. So from your point of view, how can we sort of start to, and this goes back to perception, how can we change people's perception of sort of what's going on in the world, uh, of what capitalism is versus what it really is, or what, what we're seeing right now, uh, what's masquerading as capitalism? How do we go around and sort of get people to look at things in a different way. And I, I think your work is so important because it's the kind of stuff that, you know, you don't have to be political to, to appreciate the work John Perkins is doing, to appreciate this idea of touching the Jaguar, of changing your perception, of facing your fears. Uh, and I've kind of gone on a little rant here, but if you could just address your ideas or how we can sort of transition from this current state where we do have a death economy in many ways, where we do have capitalism or something masquerading as capitalism that is certainly something much different or at least much different than, than what many libertarians would promote as capitalism. How do you see us transitioning from where we are now to a more vibrant world, I suppose? Well, the, the, the main thing is to change that perception of what it means to be successful. Uh, so the goal should no longer be to maximize short-term profits for a few individuals, basically, regardless of the social and environmental cost. And the, the new perception is maximize long-term benefits for all people and nature, all species for nature to maximize long-term benefits. And that means that we would pay people, we would pay investors good rates of return, decent rates of return, to invest in things that clean up the environment, that clean up pollution, that regenerate the environment, that recycle, that come up with new technologies that will make today's solar and wind look primitive. I mean, they're good. I'm so happy this has been happening, but 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 we want to keep moving in that direction that we create technologies that don't ravage the earth, that reuse. You know, when we, when we build a new building, if we have to build a new building, let's reuse the materials from the old building that got torn down. Uh, things like that. There's so much that we can all do in that direction to, to move toward that, but it's it's about changing the perception to begin with. And, you know, it's been happening. It's been happening, Mark. And uh, before the coronavirus, before all these demonstrations against racial inequality and discrimination and so forth, we, we were already moving toward more toward B corporations, benefit corporations. My publisher is the first publisher to become a benefit corporation, B corporation. What does that mean, by the way, for, pe for people not familiar with the term? <laughs> well, it, it, there's a definition that's actually in my book. Uh, but it, it re really, it, it's in your charter, it, it, it says that you're not there to maximize short-term profits. You're there to maximize long-term benefits. That's the short version. But there's a whole set of, of qualifications. You have to qualify. It's a very It's actually quite difficult for a lot of corporations to qualify under that. For a publisher, it means you use the, the, the best recycling materials possible for printing and, and, and in every way and, and for distribution. There's a whole set of principles around using what's the best available that's that's sustainable it's environmentally sustainable and, and, and produced in socially just ways uh, so benefit corporations b corporations conscious capitalism the green new deal you know this this has been going on i think the coronavirus and i think these the recognition of the terrible racial inequality that we've been experiencing is pushing us more and more in that direction but we we've been moving there and and i think you know for each individual it's important. You pick a corporation. Any one of your, your your listeners can pick a corporation. It could be 
it could be Chevron or it could be Walmart or it could be Nike or whatever it is and, and, and send them a post, an email, whatever you want to do that says, I love your product, but I'm not going to buy it anymore until you pay your workers in India a fair living wage or clean up the pollution you've caused. Don't cause any, you, know, you can be more specific. Send that to the company. Send it to all your social networking circles. Ask them to send something similar to the company and ask them to send it all out to all their social networking circles. And when executives get these, and I've talked to a lot of executives that will tell you a lot of them want this. They want their companies to be greener. They get children. They'll tell me that I get children. I get grandchildren. I want to do a better job. But if I lose half a percentage of market share, my main stockholders will fire me unless I can convince them that we're serving our customers better and in the long term we'll improve the situation and we'll have a greater market share. And so when we send letters out like that, that does that. So that's that's a step every one of us can take. It's not just about buying wisely and, and, and responsibly. That's important. But in addition to buying, we need to get the message out. We need to tell the companies we're not buying from them, why we're not buying from them. And we need to tell the companies we are buying from why we are buying from them. And none of them are perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we've got to keep pushing and pushing toward that life economy. And then beyond that, we've got the personal side of things that I, that I talk about in the book, that the steps that we can all take. Since I know my listeners, I don't want to let it go without asking you a little bit more about it. Because one thing you mentioned there, sort of in the procession there, was the Green New Deal. And we don't need to break out, out, down the whole thing. What a lot of my listeners will say and, and think to themselves is that, you know, even if I like the ideas behind a better environment, uh, behind sustainability, uh, when you run that through a massive government program, we're just going to get more of what you're describing, more of, of, of the death economy, more of the government forcing forcing things in and, and ultimately probably just favoring certain corporations along the way. Uh, that that to me seems very different than what you're describing here as sort of individuals empowering themselves, individuals contacting corporations, uh, using their own power to persuade people and to sort of change the world around them and change the way people are, are perceiving the world around them. So, I, I mean, would you support, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to totally get into the Green New Deal itself, but I just want to get more into your concept of of how, how this sort of thing can play out if it's run through a strong central government versus how it can play out more like you were just describing when it's really run by the people from the bottom up level. Yeah, I, I well, I think, Mark, it's 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 not it's not sort of an either or situation. I, I I personally believe that we're never going to have the change we need. We're never going to move into a life economy unless we get business behind it, including the big corporations. We've got to get them because they control the world more than the government does already, uh, and that and and so that's that's the facts. And and whether it's good or bad, it's it's there. So let's work with it. Let's deal with it. Let's change these corporations. On the other hand, there's probably certain things that the corporations aren't very good at doing, which is things like building bridges and building highways, unless we want all of our roads and bridges to be toll roads and bridges. The Chinese are doing that, for example, in Latin America. They're building roads for free in places like Costa Rica, but they make them all toll roads, and they have a, a thing into place that says that they, they're the only ones who can have franchises along those roads. I don't particularly like that idea either. So I think there can be a combination here. I'm not for big government, but I'm not I'm not opposed, but I'm not also advocating that we don't need some referees in there sometimes. Uh, so I, I think it's both, but I think we, the consumer, and the investor and the employee, we have to take a strong stand. And the important thing is that the guiding principle should be long-term benefits for everyone, 
That's got to be the guiding principle. And whether a corporation is owned by one person or one family or a group of wealthy stockholders, or if it's owned by all of its employees, for example, which isn't a bad idea, but if it's owned by, that, however it's owned, if its goal is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs, it doesn't matter who owns it. It doesn't matter whether the government controls it or whether individuals control it. The thing is, we must change that perception of what it means to be successful on this planet. So that the people we put on the cover of Time Magazine as the person of the year, or that we honor in every way, are the people that are working toward creating a better life for all of us and, and for the planet and for the long term. Uh, the people that are, that are advocating for a life economy. That's how we'll move this forward. And I have to say that I, we all know that there are some sociopaths running some of our businesses, but they're not driven by profit. They're driven by success. And when success is, 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 is defined as maximizing short-term profits, that's where they'll go. But if we define success as maximizing long-term benefits for people in nature, then they will jump on the bandwagon very, very quickly. But we the people, we the consumers, we the investors, we the employees, we need to make this happen. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. No matter what goals you want to see in the world, I mean, we all have the power to control certain things in our lives. I, I can't necessarily you now snap my fingers and change who the president is or, or change a law tomorrow, but I can't influence the people around me. I can't influence where I spend my money. I can influence the corporations that I that I you know give money to that I'm a, uh, that I'm a customer of, or I can choose not to be a customer of them. These are the things we can do in our daily lives. So I think that your message is so incredibly empowering because at the end of the day, we're going to have to look to the individuals and individual empowerment to see at, a, at a large level to see the change we want to see in the world. We have to change our own perceptions. We have to change the perceptions of those around us. And the more that happens, the more those above that respond to the public, that respond to individuals like corporations. Like you said, if we change the definition of what success is, well, corporations are going to have to follow because corporations only succeed if we allow them to succeed ultimately. So, John, I think your work is so incredibly important. Uh, I don't want to give the whole book away. So I'm just going to encourage people now to go ahead out. Uh, probably Probably Amazon is the best place if you want to name someplace else that they could, uh, should go to look for it. But Touching the Jaguar is an incredible book. I really want to highly recommend it. Thanks, Mark. If they go to my website, johnperkins.org, that'll take them to links. that will actually take them to their local bookstores. Oh, and perfect. I'm doing a lot of virtual things for local bookstores or Amazon or wherever they want to buy it. But those links are all right there on johnperkins.org. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But if you go to johnperkins.org, and I encourage people to sign up in the little box for my newsletter where, they can, where we can keep up to date with each other. And, and I just want to say, Mark, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate what you're doing. As you said, I've been on this program before, and I, and I love what you're doing. I, I think what you're doing is just so terribly important. Please, please uh, keep roaring. I certainly will keep roaring. And I mean, just, just to speak to something you mentioned earlier, just about, about changing the perceptions of success and what that means. I mean, if you looked at me four months ago, uh, I had a full-time job. I was not on furlough as I am now. Uh, right now, I'm on furlough for my job. I'm not you know, making any money that way. Uh, I'm mostly spending my time doing what I'm passionate about, pursuing things I'm passionate about. I'm writing a book, I'm doing my podcasting, and I'm happier than I've ever been. And if you told me that I'd be happier than I've ever been four months ago and I would be unemployed, I would just think, what do you mean, you're crazy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not have my, not technically unemployed, I'm on furlough, but if you told me I would lose my entire income and I'd be, be happier than I ever was, I'd think you were insane. And that was because of my perception. My perception told me that if I lost my income, I couldn't be happy. Um, yeah, if that goes on forever, I might not be happy. But for now, uh, I, I certainly uh, see the truth in 
in, in your words. So I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think reading this book at this time was very helpful to me too, because it just, it just rung true to me in so many ways. So again, uh, keep up your great work as well, John. Keep it up. Uh, again, please do check out Touching the Jaguar and uh, stay tuned. Listen to more from John Perkins because I have a feeling he'll be roaring and roaring and roaring for years to come. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, John. See you later. Let's stay tuned. For sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, friendos, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Perkins. I think John Perkins is just a fascinating individual. That's why I invited him back onto this program to talk about the concepts that he puts forward in his book, Touching the Jaguar. And as I mentioned, John just tells stories in such a, an engaging way that I really do think this book is great for everybody. And I already know we're going to get some criticisms. I already know. I know you people. Uh, but that's why I brought it up when, you know, he mentions things like the Green New Deal and things of that nature. And obviously, you know, uh, line by line, uh, we probably don't agree. Many libertarians aren't going to agree with all of of John Perkins, uh, you know, specific policies, prescriptions when it comes to government or what have you. But I think there is so much common ground with people like John Perkins, with the way he views, um, you know, how local tribes were treated. I mean, there are libertarian answers to these questions, even if someone like Mr. Perkins doesn't have the same exact answers we might have. We have so much common ground when it comes to the morality of the situation. I mean, I think every libertarian would agree that, uh, you know, a tribe that has been using land for X number of years deserves the property rights to that land. And should, those should not be infringed by governments, by corporations, by whoever. So there's a really common ground with the movement that uh, John Perkins is very much involved in and with the message he puts forward, because at the end of the day, he is absolutely correct when he says that our perceptions are what craft our reality. They craft the world we live in. And for no matter what your ideology, no matter what world you want to see, we have to change our own perceptions, first of all, in order to communicate with people, in order to get our ideas across. And we also need to change the perceptions of others. And it's really these perceptional shifts that are what's going to see actual changes that we want to see in the world, which is going to lead to a freer society, a more just society. Maybe we all don't want the exact same uh, methods for getting there. Maybe some of us think that uh, we should go through AOC and Bernie Sanders and the Green New Deal to transform the world. I certainly don't believe that way. But at the end of the day, if we really want to see a shift in the way people perceive individual rights, perceive the ideas of government, uh, perceive the way we interact with each other, that's what we have to tackle. We have to tackle the way people are perceiving our reality right now and uh, leverage that to try to shape the world into a more just society, the one that libertarians strive for and advocate for, the one we advocate for three days per week here, right here on Lions of Liberty. Again, you got me here every single Monday on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, hosting interviews like you heard today, hosting roundtables, fun discussions like you heard last week when we did our Akira Libertarian Review, our Nittany Level show. Of course, that is a show sponsored monthly by one of our Patreon supporters at the Nittany Level. For just $50 a month, you can get into the queue to become a producer on this show. Of course, we have so many other perks over on Patreon, and for as little as even $2 a month, you can get in there and get access to our secret, private, super, super super secret uh, Lions of Liberty Pride Facebook group where we do a bunch of live streams, extra commentary, a bunch of conversations and that sort of thing. Uh, and of course, $5 and higher up, you get all of our exclusive audio content and all sorts of other perks all the way along the way up that ladder. There is something for everybody there. So please do check that out at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And remember, 10% of our earnings are going to help Donorsy and their battle against the hunger holocaust that is being caused around the world by economic lockdown 
lockdowns, please do check out the several interviews I've done with Gret Glyer. Just keep keep ticking back in that podcast feed. That's why you got to hit subscribe, friends. So all you got to do is just look back in that feed, and you'll see a number of conversations I've had with Gret Glyer over the uh, course of the past few months about what's been going on in third world countries and how DonorSea is helping people and how easy it is for us to help them with just a few dollars. So every month, we've been able to fund some amazing projects through those donations from our Patreon supporters. So 10% of that money will be going to a great cause, even greater than the cause of supporting your favorite libertarian podcast, the greatest libertarian variety show on earth, Lions of Liberty. My friends, it's been a fun time. Until next week, live long and live free.